for me, a watch is um, every watch is usually linked to something uh, in my life, uh, and I think that's the same for a lot of people. We have watches that have a ten days power reserve, and I have people telling me, you know, the most important moment in my in my week is Sunday evening when I wind up the watch. I mean, I spend this thirty second. I mean, and I hear the mechanic, and I think the I see the the power reserve hand going up, and there's this all this magic happening, and and kind of I kind of grasp it, you know, when I take my connected watch, I have no idea what's happening in there. Maybe they're even listening to me, and no, this is something that I can kind of start understanding, uh, and that's why I love it. Hi, I'm Dan Rubenstein, and this is The Grand Tourist. I've been a design journalist for nearly 20 years, and this is my personalized guided tour through the worlds of fashion, art, architecture, food, and travel. All the elements of a well-lived life. A quick note, stay up to date on all the latest episodes of The Grand Tourist by signing up with your email at thegrandtourist.net. The world of fine watchmaking has become more popular than ever before. Even in the age of iPhones and working from home, gentlemen, and a few ladies too, and more than ever, have turned their gaze to their wrists. While a few major houses dominate the scene, today we're in a new golden age for independent watchmaking. Whether a timepiece costs $10,000, $100,000, or a million, collectors and estates have more to choose from than ever before. Enter H. Moser AC, a Swiss watch brand originally founded in 1828 that was revived 10 years ago by the Malin family. My guest today is Edward Malin, the CEO of Moser. If you've ever wanted to know what it's like to turn around a storied brand on the rocks, you're about to get a refreshingly honest lesson on what it really takes. Raised by a watchmaking family in the Valley de Joux, a region high in the Swiss mountains known for the craft, Edward had a career outside the industry before getting sucked into the family business. Since then, he's played the underdog and carved out a niche for Moser that's put the brand back on the map. Today, they're not only known for their elegant and beautifully handmade watches, but also for their collaborations, use of technology and materials, and even a little bit of humor. One of their latest collaborations is with The Armory, a growing menswear brand founded in Hong Kong that blends traditional tailoring with a thoroughly modern eye. I caught up with Edward from his headquarters in Schaffhausen, Switzerland, to talk about growing up in the world of watchmaking, the trials and tribulations of reviving a storied brand, and making a watch using, no joke, actual Swiss cheese. And I guess I just wanted to get started a little bit um, with your early life. You were you were born in the Valley de Joux, but were you raised there? Yeah, I actually spent... Um... I think I moved out of my house when I'm uh, to start my studies in engineering and I was 18 years old. So yeah, I spent pretty much all my childhood and teenage years uh, in the Valley de Jouy. Um There's only 6,000 6, people in about 10 villages. So yeah, it's a small community. It's a small family with the, the pros and cons of, of, of that. But, you know, my family was for a few generation, generations up there. So that's, that's all I knew until... Uh, until I moved out and went uh, to study and discover the world. And I mean, with there only being, you know, a few thousand people living there and, and so many uh, people in the watch industry there, it's like everybody you know and all of your friends and family, are they all are they all in the same industry essentially? Pretty much, yeah. I and mean, that's that's crazy. Uh, with, again, there, you know, that's everybody's talking about watches. Everybody's identified himself or herself to a, to a brand. And yeah, 6,000 people, that's, you know, including kids and retired people. So every day we would have 
thousands and thousands of people coming from France or from uh, from you know the, the the big cities, Geneva, Lausanne, and and come to um, to the Valley de Joux to to work because um, because there were there were just not enough people to work in the, all those factories. And tell me a little bit about your family, and they've been in the business for quite a while. Can you uh, tell me a little bit about that and and what that background's like? So the the Melon family, we we're a family of watchmakers. Uh, there are actually a couple of brands with bearing the name Melon. Uh, my father, um, or we own one of them, which is called C H Melon, Charles Henri Melon, which is a brand from 1888. Um, yeah, so we have been a few generations in uh, in watchmaking. My grandfather was not a watchmaker himself. He was uh, running one of the um, uh, restaurants in the Valley de Joux uh, with a few uh, rooms. Uh, my father was very active in the watch industry because he worked for JLC, then he worked for Cartier, and then uh, many years for Audemars Piguet. Um, and then, yeah, as you said before, all my cousins, my brother, all my friends work in the watch industry. But the Melon family, yeah, we're a few generations watchmakers with uh, our own brand, which unfortunately is not active anymore. But who knows? Maybe one day. <laughs> and, you know, when you first went to left the valley and went to off to school to, to study, like what were you what was you in your head at the time? Were you like? I, I really want to do anything but watchmaking, or did you think you would eventually return to it? I liked watchmaking. Uh, um, I liked watches, but I really felt like I had to do something else. I really thought, you know, no, I, I want to do something different from what my dad was doing. And uh, um, even though I went into engineering, um, I, th I thought I would go into something more like consulting and stuff like that, which I actually started. That was my first job was in management consulting. But I realized that... <laughs> That I was missing the product, the uh, the concrete stuff, and doing things, and I went back to uh, to watchmaking pretty quickly. You know what about the watchmaking industry? You when you say concrete things, can you uh, tell me a little bit about that? What is it like? You know what is what is it like working uh, in an industry like this, where you're? It seems it seems in some ways so traditional and yet uh, so completely alien to to many well i think that's what you said is this very this this roots into history into into tradition if you like you know the craftsmanship the people behind the passion that uh, that drives this industry i think that's what i was missing um when i was in consulting you're looking at numbers in, in optimization and it's all about you know how we can do faster cheaper etc um in our industry it's how we can continue to uh, to preserve art and craftsmanship and and uh and, and transfer things from generations to generation. I'm not talking about the product itself, really knowledge. And and the people you work with, I mean, their main driver is their passion and the possibility to 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 live their yeah their dream their passion and uh, and not you know I mean I, I see people even here at, at Moser like it's not about the money they earn it's about having the the freedom uh, of doing what they like and. And I mean, as many hours as possible, et cetera. And that's, that's, I think, something that today, nowadays is, is quite, um, you don't see it in, a, in every industry anymore. I think it's, uh, and, and that's the beauty of it, is the discussions you have, the projects you grow, the, the fact, I love the idea of building a brand and, and looking at history. And, and yes, sometimes people say, oh, but they're doing the same as before. But to do that, you need to study it, to understand what was done before. And you try to do it better with modern technologies, but respecting also the, 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 the way things were done in the past. And I think that's, that's I mean, 
when when I was a kid, I, I wanted to be an archaeologist. Uh, I like the idea of of you know discovering things and trying to understand how it was done before and and what had happened, etc. And I think in watchmaking, it's 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 not the same, but this, at the same time there are some parallels. And in a way, we and especially here with with Moser, where we have uh, 194 years and. Um, with a, with a lot of things that could have been lost on, along the way, but we try to preserve and, and bring um, and, and keep it in the in modern world. And uh, that's something really like that, that I love in my job. And when you did decide to get into the family business, um, you know, your father worked at AP for decades for Amar Piguet. And did he have any advice for you when you, when you started at, at, at Moser? Did he, is he someone you turn to and say, hey, dad, what the hell do I do with this? Well, I think he learned as much as I did when we moved to Moser, but uh, I think it was a common. It was what the beauty of this project or this 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 venture or this adventure was that we did it as a family. When my father retired, I think it was in two thousand and eight, two thousand and ten. Anyway, his it was he always told us that his biggest ambition always had to be independent, to be entrepreneur, to have the brand, and that's why when I what I mentioned before, we owned the Melon brand because. We had and we still have the ambition that one day we will bring back our name in the watch industry. And um, and then came the opportunity of, of Moser and and we discussed it with with my brother Bertrand and my father and said, you know, do we think it's something we, we, we could take on, uh, take that challenge? Can we help this brand and preserve the, the heritage of, of this family, etc.? cetera, and um, together with the Moser family who we work with today. And we said, yeah, let's 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 give it a try. So in a way, it was um, it was I think really like a, a decision that we took together and, and embraced together. And today I work with my brother. My father is not active, but he's still there. And I think we all discovered that it's more difficult than we anticipated. Um, a lot of people that were you know those big friends and supporter of my father when he was working at at AP. Once he had retired, they completely disappeared. They were not there. We would call them. We would try to get an email. We thought we had this huge network. And actually, our best partners today are people we never worked with uh, when my father was working, or he never worked with when he was at uh, at AP. And that was for him um, sometimes a little bit difficult uh, to realize that who he thought were their friends were just interested people. But that's the reality of this business. I think being independent, like we are a small business, um, helped us dis- discover completely other type of relationship with people based on trust, based on long-term perspective, and not just on uh, looking at you know financial returns. And what would you say is the most challenging part of, of reviving this brand and 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 running in this business today, and broadly speaking, I mean, there's tons of challenges. I mean, from a business standpoint, I think um, access to distribution and communication uh, is very complicated. Uh, the supply chain is less of an issue because we integrated, so we took the risk of saying, "Well, we don't want to be dependent on people, so we do it ourselves," and and that's a big risk. But at same same time, it, it makes a lot of the value of Moser today. But I think um, uh, strategically, or or uh, really like figuring out why there should be a Moser and what would be the added value to an industry that is saturated with with a certain number of brands of, re, of revived brands and new brands and historical brands and groups, et cetera. Why, why do we need another one? Um, that was, I, I would say, the, the most challenging and going through, I mean, and the only way to do that is to try things and being different. But by being different and trying things, you expose yourself to criticism and harsh criticism. And we know how social media uh, 
with people hidden behind a computer and their and their keyboard, um, they can be quite harsh. So I think in the beginning that was probably the hardest is to work hard in trying to save this brand because at that time it was really uh, uh, it was not to re revive but rather save uh, a brand that um, that was really in, in, in trouble. And at the same time, getting you know all those criticism about what we were not doing well. Uh, I think that was the most difficult. And then you get used to it as you see like slowly the po positive momentum uh, coming in and more and more supporters. But in the beginning, you need to answer yourself to all, the, all those criticism. But eventually, you have an army of people. I mean, it's a small community in the beginning, but it's growing and growing. And, and today, I mean, we can do a lot of things where... We'll have those people who are a huge fan of what we do and, and they answer better than us to explaining why is Moser doing this or that because we are known for doing things a little bit different and not always following the clear rules of business but rather you know our as i said before the passion the our heart and and taking sometimes not the most rational decisions but that makes our business fun before we return to edward a word from our partner polyform with its Italian roots dating back to 1970, Polyform is the ultimate purveyor of design-driven products that outfit nearly every inch of the modern home. From its stunning kitchens and dreamlike storage systems to sleek and inviting sofas. Using decades of knowledge and mastery of Italian style, Polyform's incredible designs go beyond the ephemeral trends we see so often today. Instead, they exude a kind of recognizable elegance you'd expect from a company headquartered in Brianza, near Lake Como. As the Grand Tourist is always shopping for his next remodel or just dreaming about it, Polyform has many instant icons to consider. The Saint-Germain Sofa System by Jean-Marie Massaud transforms itself into an icon based on your own inspiration. With gentle, retro-futuristic curves inspired by the 1970s, this system can be configured in oh-so-many ways that can appear like the entire sofa was designed specifically just for your living room. The design language of the Saint-Germain System comes in many shapes and forms, from standalone three-seaters to gently angled sectional elements. With a subtle shift in fabric, the entire mood of the sofa can change, a testament to its design. Boucle options make it feel cozy and warm, while subtle Italian leathers give it a cool-as-ice appeal. For more information about the Saint-Germain sofa system and all of the brand's incredible works of design, visit polyform.com. Founded in St. Petersburg in 1828 by Heinrich Moser, H. Moser has a long and storied history in watchmaking. Like many heritage brands in the industry, the turn of the millennium saw some small brands falter. I wanted to ask Edward to take us a bit through the history of Moser, how he set out to revive it, and how he guided such a respected name into new and unexpected territory. So the Moser brand has been around for quite some time. Uh, while I realize it's no easy feat, can you take me a bit through the history of the brand? So uh, H Moser is the is a brand is a family brand uh, created in 1828 by H Moser Heinrich Moser. He was born in a family of watchmaker watchmakers, also uh, fifth generation. The Mosers were taking care of the clocks and the watches in the region of Schaffhausen, which is about a half an hour from Zurich. Uh, was one of the poorest regions in Switzerland at that time. Um, and Heinrich Moser was, um, you know, 
when his father passed away, wanted to take over the role of watchmaker of Schaffhausen. Didn't work out. Uh, he was too young, so he decided to build his own brand. And that was in 1828. Got very successful because right away he got the endorsement of some very powerful people. Uh, Nicolas I, Tsar of, uh, of uh, Russia, for example, uh, was one of his big clients. And then uh, he got very successful, produced about 500,000 watches in his lifetime. So was, Moser became one of the most popular brand, uh, high-end brand in, um, in the 19th century. Uh, he went from hands to hands until about 1980. So what was it, 40 years ago? Uh, that when uh, we were towards the end of the of the quartz crisis, but it, it would, Moser went into uh, into trouble. They closed down. At least uh, we we don't have many watches from this period, 1980 until 2000. 2000, the Moser family plus a few other entrepreneurs decided to relaunch the brand. Uh, they came. They launched their first new product in 2005. Uh, 2012, they ran into significant um uh, financial problems even though they had uh, built this huge uh, manufacturer here huge in comparison with others but 80 people uh, producing uh, at that time about 500 watches and um and then but run into a lot of uh, financial issues so that's when we came as a family the melon and took over and uh, and then that's been a yeah the turnaround 2000 that was 2012 we took over in october uh, i started in in 2013 and I would say there, there's been three good years of, of turnaround and, and really uh, where it was all about cutting costs and saving this brand and trying to, re, to rebuild a, a, a sane, uh, a solid base before rebuilding on top of it. And then it's, uh, yeah, it's been a lot of fun since. And what was order number one? Like when you when you take over a brand like that that already had a facilities and had been around, it's the worst. The worst part is to cut. I mean, we 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 cut uh, half of the staff. We sold machines. It was bleeding millions. Uh, so every every month, uh, it was a lot of money coming out of the of the the current accounts, and we didn't have the the big money, uh, the big pockets of uh, of the group. So unfortunately, the big the first part um, was to uh, reduce the the staff sell inventory um, or try to use the inventory we had, uh, sell machines and, and talk to the banks, etc. So yeah, that was that was the, the, the first thing is trying to, you know, make it kind of sustainable. And then second phase was really to talk, to work on products. There were a lot of reliability issues and that was that was way more work than we anticipated how so how so like what sort of reliability issue just like you know mechanical problems oh, it could be anything like regulation of the watches um it would take a lot of time to regulate our watches even though we were doing the, our hair springs already at that time but a totally different quality and six months later the watch would be completely off so you need to bring it back under warranty spend hours in regulating it it was it was a nightmare um also that we had reliability issues with the date systems on our perpetual calendar and big dates so they would get stuck all the time in 2013 we repaired more we threw away and repaired more uh, movements than we actually produced and then most of the work in parallel was really like to have a, a, a core team taking one movement but uh, not uh, after the other and and doing re-engineering and saying no i mean there's a we bought it because there's a base but let's make it better so we went through phases and phases of re-engineering to optimize to make it more reliable faster to assemble and um and yeah it took it took a good three years before we had something that we could build on 
And can you take, for those who are uninitiated and don't know the brand, what would you say is sort of like the classic Moser watch before your family acquired it? Like what were they really known for? Well, it was known for very Germanic engineering, so amazing movements. And I, I, I fell in love with, with the mechanics of, of Moser because I didn't really understand these issues of reliability. But I think they were amazing movements, very... Um, Ingenious. Uh, it's a word we we have been looking for a word in the beginning, really to qualify those movements. And for me, it was really ingenious in the sense of they were very complicated movements, very complex, but they didn't look complicated. It was really about uh, the very Bauhaus approach, um, and and very Germanic. I think we we one of the most, if not the most, Germanic of the Swiss brands. Um, in a sense, also where what does that mean exactly? Very clean. Uh, very subtle, under, understated in the design. Um, at that time, it was all about uh, white gold or platinum with silver dials, just with, a, with our name on it, uh, or rose gold with black dials. With, as I said, amazing movements, not very reliable. But uh, yeah, I mean, the problem at that time was a lot of people were referring to Moser as uh, value for money. So it was an amazing theoretical value, uh, but the products were quite I mean, affordable for what you you got. Unfortunately, they I mean they were run by by engineers. I'm an engineer myself, but it was not about the. I mean, they they had no ideas. They really had no idea how much the watches would cost to to assemble. For them, a sale was a sale. And when we started looking into those numbers and and implemented um, analytical accounting and stuff like that, we we came to realize that they were losing money uh, on every single watch they were selling in terms of gross margin. Which, I mean, you need. You need to finance your operations. You need to build the brand. You need to protect uh, what you're doing, and that was just an, an not not sustainable. And so, you know, once you got the the sort of mechanical back of house stuff and all that stuff kind of up and running, what were you what were you sort of dying to do? Like, what was your what was in your head? Was it about you know you obviously you need to start creating new products and putting your own stamp on things, right? Not just sort of cleaning up the past. But that's a difficult part is trying to find this identity, something that that can be, for me, it was always important that it would be building on the past because otherwise I could have started from scratch. It would be easier. So it was what what could I keep and what do I, I, I um, throw away? And um, and that's where we, there was one very important element. It was one 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 watch that they had created in Palladium with a, what we call the Fumé uh, dial. And Fumé dial is a very... Uh, very old technique, probably 70 years old, that nobody was using anymore until Moser relaunched it in 2008, I think, in which is basically you have a, a gradient of color on the dial. And, and for a lot of people, that was very, very old school, very dusty. Uh, and Moser did that with a silver gray dial. And uh, when, when I looked at all the things we had, I actually made the exercise where I took the silver dial of Moser and I removed the name of it. So no more logo. And then I put it next to uh, similar watches from AP, Patek, Lange, JLC, Vacheron. So the typical uh, round uh, watch with silver dial. And every brand has it. They just look all the same. But that's all I had at Moser. So I, my exercise was, how do I make a Moser recognizable? Uh, because that's the only way people would eventually buy them. And that's where the Fumé dial became so important because it became our signature. And we started playing with colors. We tried to make it modern and we... I mean, there was this, you know, this moment, this instance where we started, we, we did a color called the funky blue uh, color, which is a kind of an electric blue, but fumé. So it's this antique color, uh, antique te technique, but with this very modern color. And that's where 
for me, it really made the click. And I said, well, that's, I know what I want to do with Moser. It really, because all the time we try to say, you know, we're a young team. We love the history and the traditions. So how do we mix the two worlds uh, in a way, being independent? I mean, there's a lot of amazing independent brands and they, they create crazy products like that, you know, are very complex, very expensive and look like not even like a watch. We were selling traditional watches. So uh, how can you be independent, small niche, and at the same time make standard products? Uh, we are a brand that is there to make the bridge between traditional watchmaking and modern watchmaking. And uh, and that was this moment, 2015, where I said, yes, we got it. And then since then, everything has been much easier. And today, I mean, you mentioned that you had to kind of downsize a bit and and sort of re- reorient the company. Can you just tell me a little bit about the size and and the the setup of the company as it is today in terms of like sure so th- today we are uh we are back to about 75 uh people we produce um a bit more than 1500 watches per year um we start at about 13000 uh, US dollars and we have an average price of around 35 probably 1000 US dollars and we're very integrated so we do pretty much everything inside the the movement um screws uh balance wheel, hairspring, these are key elements that a handful of brands around the world actually make themselves. We actually even supply about 30 of other brands with those elements. And the hairspring, if for those who don't know watchmaking, is this element that makes the, or creates the tic-tac, or creates the time. It's the heart of the watch. It's what, it actually looks like a heart beating. And and this is a very, very strategic element because that's what ensures that the, the um, the precision of a watch and that the, your watch is running and we are one of those five uh, companies around the world producing them and what would you say is is your company's sort of greatest accomplishment uh, today well I think to being recognized as as the leading or one of the leading independent brand out there um, uh, is definitely considering where we come from the fact that we are not the most let's um, say I mean there's a lot of very known and, and appreciated independent brands that are creating crazy products. We don't. We create what some bigger brands create as well, but I think better with with more um, more value and maybe more risks in what we do. I look at our products as art pieces, and the fact that people recognize that that we have built this community of people who you know got to know each other by through Moser. I have tons of people around the world. The only reason they they met each other and talked to each other and became friends is because both own Mosers and eventually they met through a forum, through an event, through I think for me that that's the biggest recognition in a way. Having this community of people who react positively, negatively or or just send us emails about what they would love to see from Moser and and what we could do better or what they love and what made them laugh or not. That's for me like the best uh of of, of what we do and I think that's that's a huge success. And you're you're known for, you know, producing this very high quality product but also now, you know, today 10 years later, you have your, many of your products have a sort of sense of humor and um, and a sort of some of them yeah. some of them yeah and and have like an adventuring spirit right that other competitors might not want to do or maybe it's part of your ability as a smaller brand to to do that where did that come from I mean, was it it wasn't ingrained in the in the brand before you took it over right I mean it was something that you kind of you've brought to the table no heinrich moser was definitely not a funny person <laughs> but uh but definitely a great entrepreneur no but i think the 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 humor and 
provocation aspect i think came from i love to think that a brand goes through a, a life cycle like human beings and uh, i do believe that yes the brand was 190 years or 180 years old when it was relaunched but then it kind of started from zero again it was like rebuilding uh so it's like you have this childhood where you're trying to find your your space i believe i took over when we entered the teenage years and i think there was a need of emancipation for the brand and trying to say listen we're not just like the others we have our own vision we have our own values and we want to express them i think the best way to express it if i do a press release or a movie that is just like the others they said hey at moser we don't believe swiss made is uh the way it should be well people will not even read it but when you say, listen, we have done, uh, we we don't believe in Swiss made. We think it's bullshit. We think um, uh, we, we will remove Swiss made because it has no value for us. We Because our watches are 100% Swiss and not like Swiss made watches, which are only 60%. And therefore, we will make a, wa a Swiss watch that is 200% Swiss using the most precious Swiss materials like cheese, etc. And, and creating this, this, I mean, this uproar in, uh, in, the, in, the, in the industry and create this discussion was our way to express ourselves so that people could listen to us. So we thought about symbolism, so creating symbols like this cheese watch uh, that I'm referring to, that was the Swiss Mad watch, uh, or the Swiss Alp watch to talk about connected watches. That was a language we felt when you small, have no budget, but have something to say, then say it by, with a little bit of provocation and a, a strong symbolism, and that works. And that was the formula that worked for us and we used for, for quite a few years because we felt that helped us uh, express who we are and what are our ideas, values, um, and opinions. We were a little bit the mavericks, but also the activists in the industry. It's an industry that has a lot of codes. You don't talk about other brands. You don't criticize the establishment. You don't do this. You don't do that. You're not allowed. People don't have never done it before. Like when we removed the logo on our dials, everybody said, you cannot sell a watch because without the logo. And I said, why? He said, because all the other watches have, have a logo. He said, people don't know the logo of Moser. So why would they buy it? They buy it because it's a beautiful piece, because there's a lot of value, but not because it says Moser on it. Um, and then when we could, when we finally proved that, uh, people realized who we were and how we stand out. And I think it brought a lot of value to our, our brand. Same thing with when we removed, we moved the Swiss made. People told me, you're not going to sell anymore because the Chinese, they want to see Swiss made. I said, we don't sell to Chinese. They don't even know Moser. We're going to sell to people who uh, understand what's inside, what is the value of Moser. And by doing, by being different, there, there, there will be a fraction of the people who will understand us, but these are going to be our most loyal customers. Eventually, the Chinese customers came to us as well because there are many of them who like what we do. It's not about culture. It's not about uh, age. It's about certain ideas and values. Uh, and that's uh, across nations, across culture, across age and uh, gender. And take me a little bit through, you know, speaking of this sort of uh, adventuresome spirit or even a little bit humorous the the Swiss Alp watch which basically is I guess you would call it a tank shape I mean to technically speaking uh, this, it's like a rectangular watch it it has loops on the end these sort of long loops I, I'm not even sure if I'm using the correct term that kind of looks like an Apple watch but obviously not and it's, it's completely mechanical and has hands and everything um, where did that idea come from? It actually came from, from me uh, sitting on, on inventory of rectangular movements. We had rectangular movements when we bought Moser and they, there was a, a collection called the, the Henri uh, which was a collection like tonneau shape that couldn't sell and my auditors uh, back in 2000 and was it 15 I think they told me that we had to write them off those rectangular movements because we couldn't sell and to be honest in the watch industry 
having non-wrong shaped movements is something is a dream of a lot of watchmakers because it's not the obvious and it's not easy to make. So knowing that, I was I was I felt bad that we had those movements and I we couldn't do anything about it. And um, and I remember it was in June 2015, just after this discussion, we had a brainstorming session with my team where we were always trying to find ways of creating something that would be disruptive, that would be different, that would maybe use the inventory that we had uh, where people had to throw ideas. And and I remember like uh, being in bed the, the night before and trying to find smart ideas to to impress my team, <laughs> to be honest, uh, or at least stimulate their brains. And that's when suddenly I saw, uh, I connected. I was like, what are the topics of the moment? What are people I'm talking about? And I meet a lot of journalists and, and the topic at that time was about um, the future of Swiss watchmaking, considering the number of uh, in, uh, connected watches that were coming to the market. And I was saying, we need to. Be, how can we be part of that story? How can we be part of that topic? Uh, we don't, we're not making connected watches. And my idea was to say, well, we need to do the opposite. We need to get inspired by hmm. connected watches, but express what our values are. And I would say the core value of Moser is about respecting tradition and trying to bring them forward. And that's when the idea came, when a lot of brands were trying to take mechanical watches and make them connected or bring a connected element, and which I think is going against our principles, we decided to do the opposite. Let's get inspired by connected watches, but make it mechanical. And it's a hand-wound, very traditional movement. So it's really bringing two worlds together. And I would have never expected that actually so many people discovered Moser for the first time thanks to that watch. Because suddenly in the news, when people were talking about connected watches, it was they were saying, well, this is what Apple is doing. This is the reaction of Patek Philippe or Rolex. And this is what Moser is saying about it. Even though nobody knew about Moser, everybody was talking about Moser. And was the Swiss Outwatch where you first used the Vanta Black mm, uh, dial? No, we first did the uh, Vanta Black on, um, oh, on uh, Endeavor Perpetual Moon, which was a moon. Uh, it was a very philosophical uh, watch. Uh, wanted to express like the black depths of the universe and having just a floating moon. And Vanta Black was the best material for that. And then we started with that particular watch. We did 50 of them. And then we started doing the using this material for other products. And can you tell people what uh, what Vanta Black is exactly? Well, you know, exactly what I said before is um, is trying to use um, respect tradition, but also being um, attuned with with our times. And uh, Vanta Black is actually a, a nanotechnology developed for aerospace to coat uh, the inside of uh, telescopes, for example, to avoid having any um, any reflection when you take a picture of a star far away in a different galaxy. And uh, so it's nanotube of carbon. Na um, uh, Vanta means vertically aligned nanotube array. So imagine like almost like a forest where the, the trees will be like your typical forest, but about uh, two miles high. So the, the photons of the light comes in and don't find a, a way out. So it absorbs the light, dissipates it in, in, in heat. Uh, and it makes it the darkest material man-made. So it's actually a gray material, but because it absorbs the light, it, it, it is the blackest thing. And it absorbs 99.98% of the light. And we decided to, we don't, we didn't want to do the same typical black dials, uh, lacquer dial like everybody does. We, we said, let's do the blackest black. And that's when Venta Black came. And because on many Moser products, uh, we don't have indexes. We don't have even our logo. It was really, in the beginning, it was very difficult to master this material. As if you spray too much hair on it when you when you um, get rid of uh, of dust or if you touch the surface when you set the hands, you would break this structure and it would 
create a domino effect and you would suddenly see this gray platform or this gray shape appear. Uh, Moser was the perfect uh, platform to use Vantablack. That's why we, we were uh, the first and probably the only one using it. And when it comes to this, there, you mentioned the Swiss cheese uh, resin. There's a watch. Can you uh, explain to me this watch and, and how that came to be, which, where essentially like, the case is uh, cheese sort of covered in resin and that's then kind of looks almost like marble in a way. Like it looks like carved marble watch. Can you, uh, how did that happen? So we are in 2016, I think, uh, when when um, we come out of uh, Watches and Wonders or SIHH, which is the big fair in January every year. Uh, where we present the novelties. And we at Moser had uh, had just launched the Swiss Alp watch, which we just talked about and created this big buzz. Everybody wanted to see it. And uh, it was really the first time that Moser was on the map of a lot of collectors and media, etc. And our chairman, my father, at the end of the fairs, came, came to me and said, well, it's, it's amazing what you did, super proud, but uh, you should do that every six months. <laughs> and I was pretty proud of having one idea. Now having to, do, to have another idea every six months was, uh, I, I didn't think we, we could. Um, so I told him, yeah, I wish I could do that. But nevertheless, we, we brainstormed. And I, I went through kind of the process that... Um, uh, helped me go th- uh, come up with the first idea, which was, you know, what's the subject of today? And at that time, there were a few subjects that were in, in, um, uh, we were discussing, but one that was not there yet, but I knew would become a very important subject was the Swiss-made label. The Swiss-made label that you find on m- most of the Swiss watches is, um, is, is, is strict regulations, which um, at that time would say that 50% of the, of the value of the watch had to be uh, uh, from Switzerland. And there was this big revolution planned for January 2017, where uh, the new Swiss-made regulation would mean 60% of the of the of the value would be would be made in Switzerland, which actually means that you can produce pretty much all the parts in Switzerland in uh, in Asia, uh, bring them back to Switzerland, assemble. Um, uh, as long as the movement has been developed in Switzerland, um, it would be a Swiss-made watch. So. For us, who produce pretty much 100% in-house and a few things uh, outside, but in Switzerland, doesn't doesn't make any sense. Uh, people say that the fact that you put on the same watch Swiss made allows you to sell at 20% uh, higher price the the watch. So in a way, it's just for me. I felt it was just some some brands are just using that as an excuse to increase their prices, even though they produce in China or somewhere else. And uh, I wanted to. Exp- to talk about it. And uh, in November 2016, we decided to, we announced that we were removing the Swiss made label from our all our watches and that we would launch the most Swiss made watch ever produced. And that's what we did exactly one year after the Swiss Alp watch in early January 2017. We launched the um, the uh, the Swiss Mad Watch where yeah, the case was made of uh, a mix of uh, certain uh, polymer and uh, the cheese from my village where I grew up in the Valley du Joux, which is the best cheese in the world, the Vacheramont d'Or. And, uh, and yeah, it made a, an amazing unique watch with, um, with a, a Swiss red um, dial with kind of representing our Swiss flag with the white cross and a cow uh, strap on it. We made a movie in a, in a stable with cows around. It was, it was a lot of fun. A very uh, low budget kind of YouTube movie, and uh, yeah, and then we communicated about it, and and it, and it, it got pretty much, I think, even a stronger effect than the Swiss uh, Alp watch because 
people uh, yeah l- love the idea and uh, there was a lot of discussions around this the topic and I had people from all over the world media like radios from from Canada Australia coming contacting us to to express what was what was it all about this Swiss made thing because for a lot of people they thought a Swiss made watch was 100% Swiss and we kind of called out our own industry which some people didn't like but I felt in a way we were cheating certain people by not being fully transparent about it but I think what was good about it is that it's it triggered discussions and I think it helped us also as a, as an industry get more transparent and improve I think there's still a lot of progress we can make but it was uh, definitely a, a good step and when you said that you you made the watch that it was almost 100% uh, you know made in Switzerland what did you have to add to it that was made in Switzerland that maybe a, a normal Moser watch wasn't if that makes any sense. It was really the material. It was the fact that we used ah. uh, Swiss cow <laughs> and uh, egg okay. skin, and then we used the, the Swiss cheese because we don't have gold mines in Switzerland. So wow, okay. again, go. that was the symbolism. <laughs> and we made one of them and we auctioned it actually for a foundation. I think we, we, we got like $150,000 for it, uh, which was amazing for a three hands Moser watch. And uh, yeah, that was very cool. So the second year and, and another success. One of your latest collaborations is with the Armory, um, where you created a minimalistic watch uh, with leather straps that has something of a classic look um, and a super dark dial made from Vanta Black. Um, how did that collaboration get started? I love collaborations. Uh, beyond the products, it's really about the process and the people. And I met um, Mark Cho, who is the founder of one of the founders of uh, the Armory in New York. A little bit more than two years ago, uh, we did a, um, a podcast um, with Blamo, and uh, we had a lot of fun. Great discussion. We realized we, we we both realized that we had similar values. And um, a few months later, Mark came to me and said, "You know, we'd love to do something together. Um, would you be open to it?" And I love to believe that you know I can learn a lot from others, especially from different industries. We did a collaboration with another watch brand called MBNF uh, two years ago, which was an, a huge success. Two brands, yes, from the same industry, but very different and and also different ways of working. So we learned a lot from each other. We created amazing products. The idea of this first collaboration was they took one of our product and reinterpreted and we took one of theirs and reinterpreted. So there were two products. Here it was it was a, a little bit different because the armory, as you said, is about tailor and, and customization and, and also in a way... Um, they have an eye for design. And I believe in, in a collaboration like this one, we as a brand provide the Canva and they need to express themselves. So it was it was very different from MBNF where they were, it was a lot about dialogues. Here it was about like, this is what we can do and then express yourself. And, and I love the result of it with the Total Eclipse because that's really what uh, Mark and this team came up with and said, we want to do this reinterpretation of a solar eclipse and you have this Vanta Black and we what's important to us is what can you do the smallest diameter and the thinner. So we started playing with, the, with those elements. They look at our museum. They, they, and in the end, it's really, it's a Moser watch, but it's really about them creating this Moser watch and not us like saying, ah, no, why don't you think we should do this or that? Yeah, I think that the, the most smooth uh, process because again even like when we created content in sense for for media like uh, the movies the pictures choosing the 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 the, the music for the, the videos we would create usually i'm very involved in those kind of things this time as the, the team would like oh, it's very different you want to you, you, you are you sure you don't want to sit i was like no 
I don't want. I want this. I want to get the surprise. I want them to to, to talk about Moser in their own words. And uh, and the result is amazing. I think yes, it's a Moser watch, but it's very different. It pushes the boundaries. I think we learned a lot. We actually uh, there's a few elements that we learned from this collaboration. They pushed us in the way we treat our. Um, uh, Vanta black dials. In this case, you have indexes that we brought from from behind uh, that we had never done before, and that's some you know, technology that now we, we because of this collaboration uh, we had to master and we can use in the future. So those kind of things are now the base for future developments for Moser. And at the same time, a lot of people who are customers of the Armory discovered Moser, and a lot of customers for Moser discovered the Armory. And um, and I think mm. we have very similar collectors or buyers or owners or followers people who want who like you know the, the value the details the craftsmanship the people like mark who are behind that who have an eye and 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 can really express you know what what this um ornament they they, they produce uh, what it why and which material the combination of colors or materials why did they choose to do it this way or that way i think they they're very good at, at deciding and also expressing it and, and, you know, in this era of the pandemic, when people are, you know, working from home, the way people are dressing are, are changing because they may not be going to the office as much. Um, and this sort of sh- shifting world, how was you, how have you seen the, the watch industry kind of adapt or what, what has the experience been like from you and, and from your industry during this kind of pandemic in terms of how the consumer is and is reacting well i think the the consumer was reacting way better than than brands um i think when when the pandemic hit um brands started panicking they were like oh my god this is a the crisis from a lot of people even my generation we never experienced like the big crisis uh yes there was 2008 but that was nothing compared to the quartz and everything so i had the feeling they were like chicken running without heads um brands like ours like moser who have been going through crisis because of this turnaround and et cetera, I think outperformed the industry because we're just ready. We're just in, in the firefighting modes now, now for a decade. So um, when that hit us, we were like, okay, in two weeks, we took decisions to implement an, an online portal to sell directly. Uh, we had prepared presentations for um, for our people to uh, around the world to be able to sell from, from home. We had a, a studio implemented here in, a, in an office to do uh, live presentations and seminars, etc. Et so we, we got very, very, very quick. Uh, and consumers were, were had a lot of appetite. I think a lot of people... We're at home look, looking for positive news, signs, things that would give them a smile, would you know make them feel good. And yes, we in, term, in times of pandemic, a, a, an expensive luxury watch is definitely not the thing, the most important thing in your life. But for for a lot of people, that definitely was something that kind of you know brought some sun into their uh, kind of disturbed uh, new uh, normal normality. I'm talking about a year and a half ago, right? And the lockdown and all those things. And we continue to be extremely active. And I think that the people were very, um, I don't know how to say it in English, uh, maybe hungry of, of of news and being online and connected and, and talking to their community and on chat and on forums, et cetera. And I think independent brands, uh, took very adv- very good advantage of that because people started sharing information news uh, that I mentioned the collaboration we had with MBNF it came out in May 2020 in the middle of uh, it was just the end of uh, the first lockdown um, 
we really, I mean, Max was telling me like, are you sure we, I mean, 95% of our doors are closed. Are we sure we're going to do it? And we said, well, we cannot wait forever. So let's do it, but let's do it 200%. And there was no news. Nobody was launching anything in our industry. So suddenly there was this and everybody was talking about it because it was fun. It was showing that brands are, are coming together. Of course, we had been planning that for years. But in the middle of the pandemic, two brands that, you know, in a way are completely opposed to each other, come together and try to collaborate to make something better. And the positive note was out there. And, and I think it triggers a, a lot of collaborations after that also. And, um, and consumers, yeah, I think it opened the, the eyes to independent watchmaking. Altogether, independent watch brands produce about 6,000 watches a year. That's nothing. That's peanuts. So imagine a few thousand more people knowing us and interested in our products that makes a huge difference and suddenly we went like it started picking up and then people said oh i saw this watch but i wanted to buy it but now it's not available anymore so i looked on the secondary market and now it's double the price but they tell their friends who tell their friends and then suddenly whoo, there was this explosion snowball effect and uh and consumers changed completely they got tired of all those boring uh established brands except maybe the few where you can speculate on their uh iconic products but what was next? Once you have your Nautilus and your Royal Oak, what do you want next? Do you want something standard that everybody can have? Or you want one of those amazing, a lot of intrinsic value products from, from independent brands? I think the choice is easy. And they all came and started uh, looking at what we are doing and understanding that we're doing true craftsmanship. I, I believe it's, it's art with people behind at their service, explaining the stories, watchmakers, real watchmakers behind, not uh, production lines like most of the big brands. And and once they started understanding that, they understood the price, they understood the values of the brands, and they got very interested in our products. Thank you to Edward, Fernanda, and the entire teams at Moser and the Armory for making this episode happen. The editor of The Grand Tourist is Stan Hall. To keep this going, please follow me on Instagram at Dan Rubenstein to learn more. And sign up with your email for updates at thegrandtourist.net. And don't forget to follow The Grand Tourist on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen. And leave us a rating or comment. Every little bit helps. Till next time. Mm-hmm.